So I found some advice that little kids were giving to adults. So here's a few of the things that some little kids are advising adults to do. Never tell your mom her diet's not working. (laughs) Here's another one. When you get a bad grade in school, show it to your mom when she's on the phone. Here's another one right here. Don't forget your wife's name. That will mess up the love. Yeah. Moving on. Be a good kisser. It will make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. All right. Here's another good one right here. When your mom is mad at your dad, don't let her brush your hair. this one. How to get a girlfriend. Play with her, hug her, and go potty so you don't have accidents. Yep. Got excited. Couldn't hold it. He peed on himself. Well, we have been in a series all summer talking about advice, and I thought we might begin with a little bit of interactions. Here's my question for you. What is the best or the worst, you can go either direction, advice you've ever been given. I want you to turn to the person next to you and answer this question. We'll play some music and give you a second. Go. Okay, make sure you trade now. Trade, make sure the other person gets a chance to share theirs too. Well, when I think about advice uh, now, I think about a book I read a couple years ago, and it's got one of the best titles of any book I've ever read. It's called Steal Like an Artist, 10 Things Nobody Told You About Being Creative. And the author, Austin Kleon, was talking about advice in the book, and here's what he said. He said, it's one of my theories that when people give you advice, they're really just talking to themselves in the past. Isn't that insightful? That so often when people are giving us advice, they're, they're really trying to change their past through you. They're trying to get you to live a different future than, than they live themselves. And, and we've been in a series all summer long called Life Is. We've discussed all of life, the highs and the lows and everywhere in between. And we've been looking at it through the lens of a book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes. And, and one way of looking at Ecclesiastes is that it's the advice that Solomon is giving at the end of his life that he wished he knew at the beginning of his life. And one of the things we've learned in this series is that wisdom is only helpful when you receive it and when you apply it at the right time. So often we know the right thing to do, but after we've done the wrong thing. So many of us know how to work something well after we've worked it bad. So many of us have the right perspective, but on the other side. And what Solomon has done for me, and I can only speak for me, I can't speak for you, what he's done for me is he's enabled me to get a new frame of reference, a new perspective, 
on life. And if you haven't been here for this whole series, we'd encourage you to go online to our website and check out the, the rest of the messages in the series. The guys who taught it with me did a great job. And I hope that this series has been helpful for you this summer. But we're going to bring this study of Ecclesiastes to a close today. And the central idea that we're going to talk about is this, that God is offering us a chance to remember what we've forgotten. Today, you're going to learn, I'm going to learn from Solomon about the chance that God is offering us to remember what we've forgotten while there's still time. If you've ever forgotten something before, you know that there's often an opportunity to remember it before it's too late. And today is that opportunity. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. If you have a physical Bible like me today, it's near the middle. You'll hit Psalms, and then you'll hit Proverbs and Ecclesiastes if you go towards the back. And, and if, you're, if you're new with us in this series, this book is written by Solomon. He's the, the wisest in his day, the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most influential man on earth. And he's writing this book within just a few short years of his death. And he's sharing his last words. And if you've ever been there at the bedside, when somebody's in their very last days, you know that last words are lasting words. Many of us remember those last conversations, both the ones that were planned and those that were unplanned. And Solomon today is going to share with us his last words, and I think we ought to lean in. I thought we ought to take them seriously. And the first thing Solomon is going to tell us from his book in the last chapter is this idea. It's time to start taking God seriously. Start taking God seriously. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, this is what it reads, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. He says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. That first phrase that I've bolded there, remember, remember also your creator, is a phrase that's, that's littered throughout the Old Testament. And, and it doesn't just mean, hey, remember there is a God. Remember there's a God out there. Remember that God is not you. There's a specific meaning behind it. And we understand that meaning when we dive into the other texts in the Old Testament, which use the phrase. Like in Deuteronomy 8, Moses writes, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your forefathers, as it is this day. So he's saying, hey, not just remember God, but remember him by keeping the covenant, the agreement you made with him. In the book of Judges, it reads, And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. So it wasn't just that they didn't remember God. They didn't trust in him. And the book of Judges is the story of this endless cycle of the people not trusting God, but trusting in themselves. In the book of Psalms, Solomon's father David says, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, when I think about the fact that God is up there, and I am here, and I meditate on his power and his, his strength so that I can sleep and I can let go of the things that are robbing me of peace. In Psalm 119, 
The longest chapter in the Bible, David says, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. So remembering God isn't just, I remember there is a God. It's, I do what that God says. And what Solomon is saying is, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near, which you will say, I have no pleasure. And he's saying, hey guys, I'm at the end of my life. And I'm trying to help you understand that at the beginning of your life, it's a lot easier to orient your life around God than it is to wait till the end and have to reorient your life. And I want to help you understand this by, by use of a picture. Years ago, uh, Stephen Covey wrote a book called The Seven, Effective, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And in his book, he used a, an illustration. He, he talked about the fact that, that for many of us, we live our lives um, pretty mindlessly. We don't think about the direction that our life is going in. We just kind of live life. Like, as of yesterday, it's 150 days till Christmas. Some of you are like, where did the other 210 days go since last Christmas? For many of us, we live our lives rather mindlessly. I know some of you are freaking out because you have shopping to do. Calm down. It's July. You'll be fine. But what, 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 what Solomon is saying is that many of us live our lives rather mindlessly. And we don't think about what's going on in our lives or what we're filling our lives with. And so what he says is that it's a lot easier to remember your creator in the days of your youth and to orient your life around him. It's a lot easier to do that than it is to wake up one day and realize that your life is filled with the trivial and the insignificant and then try to figure out how to fit the really important stuff in your life. And some of you, this is what Ecclesiastes has been for you. You're realizing that the stuff that really matters in your life hasn't been the foundation of your life. You've been trying to fit it in the margins. And what you found is that there's not enough room for what matters most when your life is filled with what matters least. And what Solomon is saying is he's saying that we have an opportunity. He's saying that we have an opportunity in this moment to remember what we've forgotten. You see, when you don't begin your life or orient your life around the trivial, when you instead orient your life around the things that are actually most significant, what you find is not only is there room for everything that's important, there's also room for most everything else. But you can't fit it all in when you try to add the important stuff to the leftovers. And what Solomon is saying here in Ecclesiastes 12.1 is remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Why? Because it's a lot easier to empty your life when you're young. It's a lot easier to reorient your life when you're young. This is the reason why the vast majority of people come to faith in Jesus before the age of 13. Because at 13, you don't have a whole lot to reorient. 
It's a lot easier to reorient your life when you don't have mortgage and kids and decades and decades and decades of relationships and pain. It says, reorient your life in the days of your youth. Remember your, your creator. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And this is where I want to introduce you to the fine print of Christianity. I heard a pastor recently say that um, following Jesus is really easy, not much changes, and your life gets better. There's a word for that. Lying. <laughs> Jesus is not merely interested in doing some touch-up painting on your life. He's looking to do major renovation. And in my life, I think about when I first started following Jesus, I was really young, and there have been a couple instances where I made radical changes. But for the most part, some of us have been following Jesus for a long time, and the change has slowed down. And I wonder if that's because we're treating Jesus as if he's a house guest. You know when people come to your house, and you have the areas you want them to be in in your house, and the areas you don't? You have those closets that you just can't get around to cleaning, or you have those rooms that you can't tackle. Jesus is like that house guest who you find in the room in your house he's not supposed to be in. Because he's not merely interested in the parts of your life that you have prettied up for him. He wants all of your life, and he wants to transform it all. And if he has to tear it down to the studs, he will. This is why I was so impacted a few years ago when I stumbled on a teaching from a pastor named pa uh, Pastor Samuel Chand. He said, growth equals change, and change equals pain. Therefore, growth equals pain. Put another way, he says, your capacity for growth is equal to your capacity to endure pain. You see, if you're living your life right now, and it's filled to the brim with the trivial, and you're trying to cram the important in, and you go, I'm not willing to, to empty it all out, to tear it all down, to go back to the very simple and start over, you're not going to grow. You're not going to change. You're not going to become the person Jesus intends for you to be. You're going to remain stuck. And this is what I, I want you to understand here. The, the, the message in light of Jesus that we see in Ecclesiastes is that Jesus is not looking to be an accessory to your life. He wants to be the cornerstone of your foundation. And one of the reasons why so many people in our culture look at Christians and they don't get it when they read this and they look at us is that many of us are trying to follow Jesus as if he's an accessory as opposed to the foundation. We're trying to cram Jesus in the leftovers and give him the leftovers. Jesus, it's fine if you change how I spend my Sundays, but don't change how I spend my Mondays through Fridays. Jesus, it's fine if you change how I think about eternity, but dear God, don't change how I think about politics. Jesus doesn't come for part of your life. He comes for it all. And Solomon is saying, while you're still young, remember God. Take him seriously. Second thing Solomon says with his last words is that old age catches up to all of us. Old age catches up to all of us. 
And I love what Solomon does in this next section as he gives us visual picture after visual picture of what it's like to get older. Beginning in verse chapter 2, he says, Before the sun and the light and the moon are, and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Well, what happens when you can no longer see the sun or the light or the moon or the stars? That, that's, that's what happens when you lose your mental capacity. Solomon is describing the fact that as we get older, we lose the clarity we once had. You walk in a room, and you're not really sure why you're in that room. You go to the grocery store, and you buy everything that you don't need, and you forget everything you do. You can't remember that phone number, or you get lost going to that one house. Those are the easy stuff. Then there's dementia, Alzheimer's, diseases that attack the mind. Solomon's saying, hey, old age comes for all of us. In verse 3, he says, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. What he's describing is there's a day coming for all of us where our legs aren't nearly as strong as they once were. This guy probably did P90X. He probably could squat 300, you know. But not now. And if you're not there, just wait. You will be one day. There are times when our arms were strong. And there's one day, well, they'll tremble. Solomon continues in verse 4. He says, the grinders cease because they are few. Right there. I didn't want to use this picture. I went with a nicer one, but my team shouted me down. So you can blame them. He says, and those who look through the windows are dimmed. What are the windows of the body? The eyes. You start reaching for the readers, and then you're back at Walgreens for a stronger prescription. In verse 4, he says, And the doors of the street are shut where the sound of the grinding is low. We, we lose the ability to hear like we once did. When I was young, my grandpa told me that I shouldn't be a pastor. He said, You should be an audiologist. I said, Why? He said, Because your parents listened to rock and roll music for 50 years. You, you can make a killing on hearing aids. In verse 4, he says, the one rises up at the sound of a bird. Some of us used to be sound sleepers, but the older we get, the less it takes to wake us up. And we're up all throughout the night. He says in verse 4, and the daughters of the song are brought low. Some of you used to be able to sing a lot higher than you can sing now. In verse 5, he says, they are afraid also of what is high and the terrors that are in the way. Whenever I leave one of my friend's house who's my age, I say, okay, see you later. I leave my grandma's house. I learn about everything bad that can happen to me on the way home, and she texts me to make sure that I got there safely. None of my friends text me to make sure I got there safely. When you get older, you become much more afraid, even afraid of heights. And he says, the almond tree blossoms. When the almond tree blossoms, it turns gray or white. He says, the grasshopper drags itself along. The older we get, sometimes the slower with which we move. In verse 5, he says, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. I won't talk much here about desire failing because I want to keep my job as a pastor. 
And then in verse 6, he says, Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel is broken at the cistern, and dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. He's talking about heart attacks, strokes. And what he's trying to say is that I am here at the end of my life trying to speak to those of you who have an opportunity and you think this is never going to happen to you. And he chuckles. And he says, this is going to happen to you too. This is one of the the things I've really been grateful for as I've always been involved in churches that were multi-generational. I had an opportunity to learn about life from people who were on the other end of it. And I have some of my friends who pastor churches that are all people in their 20s. And they're They're drowning in energy and they're desperate for wisdom. And what Solomon is doing is he's giving us wisdom here. And he ends this section in verse 8 by saying, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. That's the way he began the book in Ecclesiastes 1-2. Saying, vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. What he's saying is that your life is slipping away like a mist. And so old age is coming for all of us. And so with this life, this very short life you're given, it is important to remember and live in light of the brevity of life. His third last word is that we are to allow God's word to goad us in the right direction. Allow God's word to goad you in the right direction. If you don't know what goad is, don't worry, I'll teach you the word in a second. In verse 9, he says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. He says, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. What what Solomon is saying is that he didn't just write any words to us. He thought carefully about the words that he was going to write. This is the reason why 3,000 years later we're inspired and moved by Solomon's words. And, and there is a, there is a, I don't know if it's a tradition or a school or a philosophy that says that the deeper you are and the more seriously you teach the Bible, the more boring it gets. And sometimes it feels like, it's just as a pastor, that's, that some of the people want you to be more boring. And I think what Solomon is saying is that the worst thing you could do when you're teaching God's word is be boring. In verse 10, he says, I I sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. This is the reason why I spend hours every week thinking about rocks and rice. Because I want you to be engaged by God's word, and I want you to remember it. I want it to last longer than your lunch today. And he continues saying, the words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is weariness to the flesh. If you're a student, you would say, amen. Much study wearies the body. What Solomon is talking about here is, is something that in an agrarian society, which some of you may be a part of, depending on where you live in the, in the Quad Cities area, he's talking about this idea of a goad. And in their day, they didn't have tractors or John Deere's. They had oxen. And if you had oxen, you would try to push those oxen to go further and faster by using a goad. 
which was often a spike off the end of a stick or a board with nails in it. And you would use that to provoke and drive those animals to produce more. And what he's saying is that God's word and the words of the wise are like goads and they're given by our one true shepherd God to drive and provoke us and push us to go and step where we haven't gone before. And this is the reason why we gave out a a reading guide this summer so that you'd read through Ecclesiastes. Because if, if the 35 minutes we spend together on Sunday mornings with God's word is the only time you touch this book, it won't provoke you very far. You need to engage it more. And some of you are here at Cornerstone and you've been here for a few weeks, you're still checking us out. As a church, we have an intentional philosophy, practice, you might even call it a bias. But we believe our bias is biblical. We're trying to provoke you not to gain more knowledge, but to take action. The brother of Jesus, James, he said this in his book, James chapter one, he says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. If you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you've heard, then God will bless you for doing it. The test of what happens here is not whether you enjoy the popsicles on the way out or give me a high five on the way out and say, hey, good job, pastor. The test... It's what you do. And it's great to have warm fuzzies on Sunday. But the challenges you're going to face on Monday and Wednesday, they don't just require warm fuzzies. They require action. They require us to, to take action based upon what we heard. If you've ever sat there with somebody at the end of their life, they didn't just want you to take in the knowledge they gave you. They wanted you to live differently. They wanted you to do something with what they gave you. That's how you honor them. That's how you remember them. And Solomon is saying, allow God's word to goad you and to take action. And then he concludes this book by saying, trust God and live by his plan, not yours. Trust God and live by his plan, not by your plan. Solomon says in verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Your Bible may say, this is the duty of all mankind. This is the job of all of us to fear God and keep his commandments for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's saying, hey guys, the the simple summary of this 12 chapters and whole summer is this, fear God, keep his commandments because everything is going to be judged. And and if you are going to follow God, if you're going to fear him and keep his commandments, you're going to have to trust him. Every relationship I've ever been in has had one thing in common if it was successful and one thing lacking if it wasn't. It's trust. Every couple I've ever dealt with that's been in crisis in their marriage, the one thing that had to be there for them to have a future trust. And I think a lot of us struggle with trust, with God and with people. I think this is the reason we struggle. There are two reasons we don't trust people. First, we don't know them. Second, we know them. (laughs) Right? 
But here's the thing about God. And these are his words in John chapter 7. This is what Jesus said about himself. He says, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. God is saying, I'm somebody who is completely trustworthy. There's no falsehood in me. And isn't that why for so many of us we struggle to trust people? Because we've experienced falsehood or hypocrisy in them? See, see, the test of Ecclesiastes isn't, has this book made you wiser? The test is, have you grown in your trust that you have in God? And how you live on a daily basis is your life more greatly and more markedly known by trust. I think for many of us, the issue when it comes to God is actually different than we think it is. I wonder if our struggle to trust in God is really a struggle for control. It's one thing to say, man, I'm just, I, don't, I don't have faith for that or I'm struggling to trust God that much. What if in actuality, if you just cut through all that, what if the real hardcore issue is you don't actually want to give up control of your life to God? You see, this, this is all about control. This is all about trust. And I believe in some of your lives, some of you who are here today, some of you who are watching online, what God wants to do in your life is actually far more comfortable than you were comfortable with. It's far more uncomfortable than you'd like. What if God wants me to pour everything out, Scott? What if he wants me to let go of all these things? What if he wants me to surrender all of these things? What, what if I'm no longer going to have those things in my life? What if, I don't, what if I'm not going to know what tomorrow holds? What if, what if I'm going to have to get more uncomfortable? What, what if I'm not going to know what, what the next day is going to bring? Or, 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 that's all about control. And I'll tell you that, that just three years ago, that was exactly where I was when I moved here to be your lead pastor. I felt like God was pouring out all of the rice in my jar. I was leaving a place that I'd known for 14 years that had 4 million people. And I was moving to a town of 40,000. I was leaving a church that I'd known for 13 years to come visit a church I'd been to for two days. I was leaving behind 15 years of friends, college, grad school, beginning a family and I knew a handful of people and I felt completely out of control I wrestled with anxiety for the very first time in my life couldn't sleep at night heart racing not knowing what was going on in my body and as I look back I realized what was happening God was asking me Scott do you trust me yes God okay give me control you want to know how much you trust God? Where are you in control? And where's he in control? And if you're going to follow Jesus, what he is going to call you to do, like Solomon describes, is he's going to call you to lay down the life that you had in mind and surrender it to him so he can give you the life that he had planned for you. This is why I love the words of Joseph Campbell in his book, 
a man with a, a hero with a thousand faces. He says, we must be willing to let go of the life we planned so ask to have the life that is waiting for us. Most of you, I've done this hand raising thing before, I'm not going to do it again. Most of you are not where you thought you would be. And you can keep kicking at the goads that God is trying to use to provoke you to the life he has for you, or you can allow those goads to take you where only he can take you. And today is an opportunity. God is giving you an opportunity to remember what you've forgotten. I don't think I've said anything profound today. I don't think I've said anything that you don't already know deep down. But I wonder if what God is doing is he's trying to help you remember things you've forgotten. He's trying to help you come back to things you've got away from. I wonder if what he's trying to do is he's trying to lead you into the life he has for you, not the life you had in mind for yourself. On the back of your handout are some next steps because we believe in doing what God's word says. And these are going to require not just you to listen, but for you to engage. The first one is this. I want you to summarize the main lesson God has taught you from Ecclesiastes in a sentence. If you've pen or you have a notes app on your phone, I want you to pull it out right now. And in the space under number one, I want you to write down what do you feel like God has taught you? Whether you've been here for nine weeks or five or one in this series, what's the one thing that you feel like God has taught you from our series on Ecclesiastes? As a community group leader, I love that awkward silence. Because you're really going to make us do it? Is he going to keep waiting? Once you get that main lesson down, once you get that sentence, it doesn't have to be a perfectly grammatical sentence. It can be a sentence fragment. Nobody's going to judge you. School hasn't started yet. Number two, I want you to identify your next step in applying that lesson. If that's what God taught you, what is the very next thing you should do? One thing. This is what God taught me. Here's what I want to do next. For those of you overachievers, I said one thing, not a five-point plan. One thing, your next step. And then number three, I want you to trust Jesus, and if possible, take that step before you go to bed tonight. Because according to Scripture, delayed obedience is disobedience. And when you know what God's called you to do and you put it off, that's a sign that you don't trust, that you want to be in control. If you're going to follow Jesus, you are never going to be 100% certain. You are never going to feel 100% safe. But you can have peace. I want to remind you that life, it's beautiful and it's bizarre. It's futile and it's wonderful. It's hard and it's good. It's meaningless and it's odd. It's funny. And yes, it is a highway. But it's one that you can walk, not alone, but based on his foundation. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, 
visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.